And Father, you would give us the grace to be transformed by it this morning. Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. While you're turning there, someone needs to make a note to uh, whoever the official counter is in the money. I think Krista cheated. She surely would have had to have knocked off a bank in order to put that many pennies in that bucket, okay? So, no, not really, Krista. You did great bringing all those pennies. That, that was awesome. I just thought, they just keep coming. So, it was, uh, no, it was good. It was very good. Matthew chapter 1. You know, this is the problem, and uh, uh, someone on Facebook was saying that they knew someone with a related problem, so they didn't feel so bad. But when you're not in an expositional series, you, you're just constantly thinking, well, where am I, where am I supposed to go next? And I like it when, you know, you're in a book because you always know, you always know where you're going to go next. Unless God specifically says, no, preach on this topic. It's just the next passage. And so I, I was in Luke and then I was trying to figure out where am I going. I thought, you know what, let's just, let's just finish out what we just started last week looking at who Jesus is uh, and pick right back up and look at uh, what my Bible has simply labeled the birth of Jesus Christ. I thought, well, you know, what better way uh, to, content, to celebrate Christmas just by looking at that this morning. And as I was thinking, not just on this passage, but on Christmas in general, uh, you know, I couldn't help but, but be reminded of certain, certain classic scenes from some, from some Christmas movies. And I know today a lot of people complain about the consumerism of, of Christmas. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, the kids watched Miracle on 34th Street, I think, for the first time. And uh, there's the scene where, uh, you know, the, the, the Santa Claus is there in the locker room changing out of his, his outfit. And they're kind of complaining about the consumerism of Christmas, even back then, in what, the 40s, when this movie was originally made. And the, the janitor says, there's a lot of bad isms going around today, but consumerism is the worst. And I got to thinking, you know, there is something to be said about that today. That, uh, you know, frankly, the gift giving doesn't bother me because, because what are people doing? They're spending money on someone other than themselves. But what, but what reeks of consumerism is when uh, you find people being uh, unkind towards one another in the pursuit of buying those gifts. And so you see people, you know, cutting in line or, you know, grabbing something out of somebody's hand or, uh, you know, the, frankly, uh, disturbing... Uh, mentality of, uh, of being told someone has just died and trampled and complaining that you can't finish your shopping because the store is closing. Uh, that obviously is consumerism to its most sinful degree. But then I was also reminded of the Charlie Brown Christmas movie. And you have poor Charlie Brown who's in charge of the Christmas play running around all over the place trying to get things together and struggling to know what is Christmas all about. And you have this great scene where, where, where Linus comes up and he just simply reads the Christmas story. He says, Charlie Brown, that's what Christmas is all about. And so this morning as we go to our text, we need to understand as Christians what Christmas is all about. And what it ultimately is all about is a time to specifically set aside, behold and reflect on the glory of Christ himself. That's what Christmas should be about for us as Christians. And I hope from our text this morning that's something that we're going to be able to do. So I invite you to look with me at Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read verses 18 through 25. And I would encourage you to follow along as I read. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what, was, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. May God bless the reign of his word. I think that from this passage, the glory of Christ can be seen in three things this morning, so we want to observe these three things. First, the glory of Christ is seen in a supernatural conception. The glory of Christ is seen in a supernatural conception. This message from the angel must have been both terrifying and comforting for Joseph. You see, up to this point, Joseph doesn't know that Mary is going to be the mother of Jesus Christ. Mary knows because the angel has visited her at least weeks, if not months before, and has told her that because she had found favor with God, she would in fact be blessed by being the mother of the Messiah. Now that in and of itself is, was amazing, but what was more amazing was the fact that she would be a mother having never known a man. Now sometimes we're tempted to, to, to miss the the unbelievable nature of that because we think back to the Old Testament and say, wait a minute, there's Abraham and Sarah and there's just, you know, Elizabeth, her cousin in the previous chapter and God is blessing them, people who are barren with fertility and having kids. And yes, that's true, but you have to understand in those circumstances, God is using the normal process of conception and birth. There is a husband and wife who are engaged in regular relations and God is supernaturally invigorating, bringing vitality to them to ensure that they have a child. Here that's not happening. Here that is not happening. Mary is still a virgin, but she was a betrothed virgin. You have to understand in the first century Jewish culture that was very similar to being engaged, but it was a, more, a much more serious commitment than that. These two people have, have pledged, have promised one another that they will be married before the public, before their friends and families and relatives and make known their intentions to be husband and wife. That's why Joseph, though they're not yet married, is still called Mary's husband in the passage. They're not, they're not living together. They have not, they're not enjoying all the benefits of being married. Nevertheless, for all intents and purposes, they are. And despite the fact that Mary has not yet known her husband or any other man, the Holy Spirit comes and creates human life that will that will be Jesus in her womb. Just as God the Father spoke all of creation into existence, so now he miraculously brings into existence Jesus the Christ child. But she hasn't told any of this to Joseph yet. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Joseph who is so looking forward to his wedding day? He is so in love with Mary. And perhaps one day he knocks off early from work at the carpentry shop where, where, you know, where that, that, that he owns. And he goes to see her, perhaps maybe even taking her some gift. And, and perhaps she, she moves a certain way, but, but something happens and, he, and she, he sees that swollen belly indicative of pregnancy. Maybe that was it. Maybe it was something else. Perhaps it was every time he was walking by, perhaps going the opposite direction to get to work, but wanting to see his betrothed, and she was sick every morning. 
We don't know what it is, but somehow Joseph becomes aware that she is pregnant. I have a hard time believing that, that Mary was the one who told him because otherwise she would have surely told him all that the angel said. Somehow he's found it out on his own and he's in quite the dilemma. Because we know that for all intents and purposes it appears as if Mary has been unfaithful. That she has slept with someone else. That that which was to be saved for their wedding night has been given away to someone else. And Joseph, you understand, is not just the average guy. He's a righteous man. He's a good and just man. And so there is a serious problem, though he loves this woman. She obviously is not just and righteous and a fit wife to be with him. A lesser man would have taken full advantage of the law of Moses, loudly proclaimed her apparent infidelity while divorcing her, branding her for life. But Matthew says Joseph was not a lesser man. He says Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. No show. No desire to punish Mary for her apparent indiscretion, but being a righteous man, Joseph decided it would be best to break off the betrothal and to pursue another woman. And Matthew says he is considering all of these things. All of these things, he's not actually, he's not actually filed for the divorce yet, as it were. He's not actually told Mary, this is what I intend to do. He's just hurt and devastated and molding all these things over in his mind. And you can imagine him perhaps sitting at his workshop having some kind of piece of wood that he is sanding down with a plane. And then normally he would be moving quickly. You can just imagine him just kind of, heart totally not in his work thinking through, why would she betray me like this? Who was it? What, what, what does all this mean? I, I thought she loved me as much as I loved her. But before he is able to take the course that he feels would be most righteous, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That's, this is the comforting part. Mary wasn't unfaithful. The fact that she was pregnant did not reflect negatively on her. She had done nothing inappropriate. She had not betrayed him. But in fact, she had experienced a miracle brought by God. You have to let this hit you. Again, this is all familiar to us, but not to Joseph. Remember, this has never happened before. Yeah, Abraham, Sarah, all that stuff, but not this. God has never enabled a virgin to conceive and bear a child. And that's the point. That's the point. He is desiring to grab the attention, not just of Mary and Joseph, not just of their family of friends, not just of the righteous in Israel, but for all people, all time, he is saying, this child is unique. There's never been one like him before, and there will never be one like him afterward. There's a story about C.S. Lewis. You remember C.S. Lewis is the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. He is, uh, a, even today, a well-respected, uh, well, he, he's dead, but he's well-respected as an English scholar, as a literature professor. People still read his books just for that value alone. And, and one day while he was uh, in his offices at, uh, at the college in which he was employed in England, one of his unbelieving co-workers came by, and there happened to be carolers uh, down outside uh, on the college grounds singing a hymn that specifically uh, dealt with the, the virgin birth. And his unbelieving friend said, boy, it, isn't it nice that we know better? And C.S. Lewis said, what? Uh, well, what do you mean? He says, isn't, we, isn't it better, isn't it good that we know more than they do? And Lewis says, 
be more specific. What are you talking about? And his friend went on to say, well, isn't it good that we know now that virgins don't have babies? And C.S. Lewis stopped what he was writing and looked at him incredulously. And he said, don't you think they knew that? That's the point. That's the point. It's not as if those first century Jewish uh, uh, peasants were so stupid. They didn't know that you had to have sex in order to get pregnant. That somehow virgins just spontaneously conceived. Of course they didn't know that. That's the whole point. Everybody is saying, what do you mean? She's never known a man. She's never been with anybody. And yet she's pregnant? God must have done this. Everyone is meant to sit up and to take notice. And so now everyone, even from that day to today, when they hear of the virgin conception, they either laugh and shrug as skeptics or they stand back in wonder and awe as a believer. No one ever ignores it. And that is why the glory of Christ is seen in the virgin birth, in this supernatural conception. But secondly, the glory of Christ is seen in a sinless Savior. The glory of Christ is seen in a sinless Savior. The angel not only explains how the child came to be conceived in Mary, but why. He gives Joseph the whole plan. And you know, he's been wondering about this, right? Okay, angel, you've told me what has happened, but why? Why, why is this happening? Why are you seeking to do this thing in the woman who's going to be my bride? Why are you showing your glory through her in this way? The angel says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now see, suddenly this becomes the frightening part for Joseph. It was comforting when he knew that Mary was not unfaithful. But now the frightening thing is, Joseph, you're going to be the human adoptive father of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Huh? What? What does that mean? I mean, what am I going to do? We said before the people of Israel were expecting a Davidic Messiah, an anointed king of David's descendants to rule over them, to defeat their enemies for them and to restore them to the glory they once set as a nation. But God says, no, no, I'm going to do something far greater than all of that. Far greater. I'm going to rescue you, not just from Romans, I'm going to rescue you from your sins. The Bible says ultimately sin is at the root of every calamity in the world. Yeah, calamity happens through all manner of things. Accidents, forgetfulness, disease, disaster. But these things are simply symptoms of the problem, of the disorder that exists in all of creation because of sin. And the greatest disorder that we experience is our broken relationship with God. Because of our sin, we rebel against Him and His righteous rule in our lives. In our sin, we twist every good gift that God gives to us into an idol. And we give it our worship instead of worshiping the God alone who deserves it. Sometimes we go even farther and twist it into an instrument of violence against other people. And the result of all this sin is one thing and one, one thing alone. Judgment. Judgment from a righteous and holy God. And he's not wrong to do that. Because he is an infinitely glorious and holy God. And so the judgment needs to come. But the judgment comes in such a horrific manner that, if, that no one can endure it. No one can withstand it. It's not just a slap on the wrist you get from God. From the smallest sin to the biggest sin. No, the judgment that you deserve, the judgment that we will receive, is the unending torment of hell. And the glorious truth about this birth of Christ, this birth of this, this infant Jesus, is that in Him, God has provided a Savior from that coming judgment. 
He has provided one who will rescue us, who will deliver us from the wrath of God that is coming. Many mistakenly believe, though, that it was necessary for Jesus to be born of a virgin in order to be sinless. That's not true. It's just not true. It's important that Jesus was born for a virgin. We're going to explain why in a minute. But you have to understand that, that there are two kinds of sin that exists in our life. There is inherited corruption as well as inherited guilt. Inherited corruption is the fact that we're all born with a sin nature. So it doesn't matter that he didn't have a human father. He still had a human mother who in and of herself was sinful. Mary herself says that in Luke chapter 1. She says, she called out to God my Savior. She needs a Savior. She's sinful like everybody else. So just because, just because he doesn't have a human father, that doesn't mean that Jesus is inherently sinless. No, God in the process of creating the human body of Jesus Christ had to supernaturally protect him and keep him from the sinful nature. But the reason why, the reason why Jesus was born without a father is to help remind us of two things. First is the fact that we do have not just an inherited corruption of sin, but also an inherited guilt of sin. You see, the first man, Adam, stood as our representative during the time of testing in the Garden of Eden. And the bad news is he failed. And so because he failed as our representative, God reckons all of humanity as having failed the test. We all stand condemned as sinners. But shortly after that failing, God made a promise, didn't he? He said, even though this representative of all of humanity, Adam, has failed, I will set another representative of humanity. And he will not be under the authority of Adam, the first man. No, he instead, he will be born of a woman. And this descendant, this seed of the woman is the one who is going to overthrow Satan. He is the one who is going to defeat sin. He is the one who is going to come and to be a savior. And so the point of the virgin birth in that sense is to say, you have this line of descent that goes from Adam on down to Abraham to David, to all the covenant promises. But then, especially... In Matthew's, it doesn't say Matthew, the father of Jesus. It says Matthew, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus. What's the point? The point is there's a hiccup in the genealogy there. Jesus Christ is not born with that same sinful representative standing over him. He does not come with the imputed guilt of sin that we are born into the world with. No, he comes born free of that. So that through his death and his resurrection, now he stands as a new representative of all humanity. And so when we place our faith in him, God, in a sense, transfers us so that Adam is no longer a representative, but Christ is. And Christ never failed the time of testing. He never gave in to temptation. He remained sinless his whole life. So now we have not imputed guilt, but imputed righteousness into our lives. That's the point of the virgin birth. That's the reason why it comes. But it also comes for another reason. The other point is that we need to see salvation can never be brought about by human effort. We can't save ourselves. Mary and Joseph didn't come together and say, look, let's have the Christ child. Let's give birth to the Messiah. We need a Savior. Let's produce one. Didn't happen that, day, that way, did it? People claimed the Messiah in Jesus' day. Lots of people claim to be the one who was going to save their people, not from sins, but from the rule of the Romans. And none of them were it. They weren't the Messiahs. They weren't the Savior. Likewise here, 
God is helping us to see we can't save ourselves any more than we can create a Savior for ourselves. God must do something miraculous. He must do something spiritual. He must do something unbelievable and undeniable in order for us to be saved. And all of these things He did in Christ. Matthew goes on to comment that what has, on what has happened and he explains how Jesus is the Savior that we need. He says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus wasn't just an ordinary child miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit. No, he was more than that even. In fulfillment of the prophecy given by the prophet Isaiah, Jesus comes as Emmanuel, God with us. He is God taken flesh. The Gospel of John explains it well. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the amazing reality of the Incarnation. That God Himself, God the Son, the second person of the triune deity, became flesh. Jesus was both fully human and fully divine. And as such, He was the perfect mediator to stand between humanity and God in reconciling sinners to himself. In his humanity, he perfectly identified with us in our sin. This is the reason why Jesus was baptized. You ever thought about that? John's baptizing for repentance of sin. What has Jesus got to repent of? He's not sinned. He is being baptized because he is identifying with us who do need to be baptized. All who need to go before God in repentance, all who after, after receiving salvation are baptized as a sign of faith, Jesus comes and He says, I'm standing in their place. These 30 some odd years that I'm living on this life, I am doing it as the representative of this new humanity. So in every way, I must identify with them. I will endure every temptation. I will go through every trial. I will experience every pain and joy that any other person in the world is ever going to experience so I can stand as their mediator before God. But if he was just human and all that, he still wouldn't be enough because he wouldn't be perfect. And it's in his divinity that he remains sinless and perfect as the offering that we need. The scriptures explain that as God in the flesh, sinless and perfect, Christ saved sinners by offering himself as a sacrifice which perfectly satisfied God's wrath against our sin. In the incarnation, Jesus, that infant child was born as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You should never, ever listen to the song, Mary Had a Little Lamb, the same way again. Because though whoever wrote that probably had no idea about that, it is so prophetic in exactly what was taking place. Yes, Mary did have a little lamb. A little lamb who would grow up to be a man and would willingly suffer and endure an unimaginable torment so that you might experience salvation and forgiveness with God. You know, when Melinda and I were married, we had a beautiful wedding. I'm, I'm biased, of course, when I say that. But it was a, I think it was a beautiful wedding. But that wedding didn't just happen. There was a lot of planning. There was a lot of money. There was lots of excitement. There was lots of running around. There was lots of late night doing all kinds of stuff, getting ready for it. It was a whole production, frankly. It was worth it. It was exciting. It was nice. It was wonderful. 
But a year or two after Melinda and I had been married, we, we were down in, in, in seminary. And I think actually, I think we just come out of watching a movie or something. We were kind of reflecting and we said, you know, it's kind of a shame we spend all that money and make such a big deal at the beginning when frankly, we don't quite understand fully what marriage is all about. We, 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 we've not deepened in our love both through the good times and the bad times. We, you know, we, 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 we've, not, we've not experienced even close to the fullness of the love that we have for one another. And so we have all of this stuff at the beginning, but we said, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be nice if you had the small ceremony when you first got married, and then like on year 25, that's when you had the big blowout. And you, because, because basically, you have all this excitement and all this, all this pomp and all this joy, but it's all in anticipation. It's all for what is to come. And frankly, that's what's going on at the birth of Christ as well. The, 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 there's an amazing amount of celebration and rejoicing associated with the birth of Christ. There's the, the miraculous conception itself. There's the heavenly host shooting across the heavens everywhere, singing and proclaiming the glories of God. There's shepherds who come and rejoice in a couple of years. The magi are going to come and worship Jesus when he's two or three. But never forget what it's all about. It's not, the, it's not the supernaturality, if I can coin a phrase there, of Jesus' conception of a virgin mother. It's the fact that he was born to die. He was born as the Savior of the world. And the reason why the angels in heaven are proclaiming the glories of God so much is not just because even though he's taken on flesh, he's still God and deserves it. Because they know the plan. They know why he has taken on flesh. That he will one day ascend to the cross and there become the Savior of the world. The thing worth celebrating, the thing that should cause our hearts to rejoice and our eyes to weep. That which should give us pause every year is that God sent His Son to save sinners. That's what it's all about. And that's why we can clearly see the glory of Christ in Him as the sinless Savior. The last thing this morning, we should see the glory of Christ in an obedient response. We should see the glory of Christ in an obedient response. Response. You can imagine how Joseph must have felt waking up for that dream. Again, lesser men may say, what did I get a hold of last night before I went to bed? What did I drink? Not Joseph. He wakes up and again, he surely has taken comfort in knowing of Mary's godliness and fidelity. But again, he's just thinking, God, how do you raise your own son? How do you raise the Messiah of the world? But then beyond that, what about the rumors that are going to come? People are either going to think Mary was unfaithful just like he thought, or they're going to think, to think that they were not ungodly and they couldn't wait and follow God's plan and timing for the way a husband and wife come together and consummate the union that God has spiritually united in their hearts. Other people are going to see that Mary's pregnant. Her family, my family, what are they going to think? Someone sent me a Facebook button that said, dads that have cute daughters carry handguns or something along that line. You know, and you can imagine Mary's dad looking at Joseph, first century. Boy, what'd you do to my daughter? That's not a situation I would want to be put in. Think about all these things that Joseph's going through. And frankly, it's at that point when the gravity of the situation has come upon him. This is where Joseph's true colors come through. Because juxtapose it with people today. Juxtapose it with guys today. We have a hard time with our young men today because they refuse to grow up. 
They want to be boys their entire lives. They want to play around. They want to shirk responsibility. They don't want to grow up and act the man. They don't want to actually get married and commit to a relationship. They just want to hook up and play the field. They don't want to actually hold down a steady job to the point that they can actually provide for their family and get a mortgage. No, they just want to hop, skip, and jump all over the place. They don't want to actually sacrificially love their wives and kids the way God calls them to. They want to go out and have fun with their friends, right? I mean, am I, am I wrong on this perception? Because I've observed it both in my college days and now as, a, as, a, as an older married guy, the younger guys I have interaction with. You think about it, this would happen today. Frankly, even, even, if, even if, it, if it didn't happen today, over here you could easily imagine Joseph, the, the Matthew saying, and Joseph was so afraid and ran. I mean, can't we imagine that? Joseph just being, it's too much. I didn't sign up for this. I, I just love Mary. For, forget it, I'm out of here. He takes off off in the desert somewhere. And God has to provide another husband. I mean, you read the Bible, and there have been men and women who have bailed on God's plan under much less pressure than this. But Joseph doesn't do that. Joseph doesn't hit the eject button. To his credit and to the praise of the God he honored with his life, Matthew tells us, when Joseph woke from the dream, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. First, Joseph took his wife. He married Mary. Regardless of the consequences, regardless of the rumors, regardless of the difficulty, he loved her and he made a promise to marry her. And despite the difficulty, he kept his word. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Joseph was willing to put off consummating his marriage. The, the supreme act of giving full expression to his love and devotion to Mary until well after the wedding was over. It wasn't until after Christ was born that he and Mary began to have children of their own. In Joseph's mind, what's interesting, you know, Matthew says everything that the angel commanded, I don't ever see the angel actually commanding that. And again, I think this says something about Joseph here in that he understood what was at stake here. Even if it was imperfectly through a glass darkly, he knew that there needed to be no doubt in anyone's mind that though Joseph had raised, loved, and cared for this child as if it was his own biological son, it wasn't. This was God's son. And then just as God commanded, Joseph called his name Jesus in every imaginable way. Not just what was asked of him, but beyond even the, to, to the intentions that lay behind it. Joseph obeyed God. And God was glorified in that. God was glorified by Joseph's willingness to sacrifice his own desires, his own well-being, to ensure God's design for salvation succeeded. That God's word was obeyed. You know, because of the excesses of some other Christian traditions which exalt the parents of, of Jesus to, to the status that, that they're granted sometimes sinlessness and they're prayed to and they're, and they're worshipped, uh, Protestants have kind of rebelled against that and almost, almost devalued Mary and Joseph and pictured them as just country bumpkins that all this stuff happened to. Don't, don't believe it. Don't buy it. Joseph and Mary stand as supreme examples of godliness and faithfulness to us. God wouldn't have chosen, frankly, anyone else to be responsible for raising his son unless they were that way. And just as Joseph specifically here is pictured as being obedient to God, likewise, we have a decision that we are faced with as well, a decision to be obedient to God and embrace the Christ child just as Joseph did. Not just the child in the manger, not just the, 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 the cute infant that you would love to hold and stroke its hair. Can you imagine that privilege? 
Can you imagine old Simeon standing? God said, you will not pass away until you see the Messiah. And I can only imagine he's thinking, you know, coming in, saying, you know, you know, putting the staff down and saying, I am the Messiah, the one anointed sent by God. And instead, the Holy Spirit says, that's him. And he turns around and there's Mary and Joseph there for the offering. He begins to weep and he says, look at this. This is what Jesus, this is, this is the Messiah. Oh, God be praised. A light to his people and to the nations. It's not just that child that we embrace. It's the Lord of glory. The one who grew up to be a man and preached things like the Sermon on the Mount where he said, this is what it looks like to live in my kingdom. This is the high standard of godliness that I'm calling my disciples to. The one who laid down his life and now stands, the scripture says, as the resurrected king of all things. The one to whom, whether you will, are willing to do so or not, when he returns, he will cause every knee to bow to him and to his authority and to his glory. Whether you do it in this life or the next, you will acknowledge Jesus as king. That's the decision that we have to make this morning. We have a choice. Not just on this Christmas day, but every, but every day, every hour, every moment of our lives. Will we in faith look to Christ as our Savior and follow Him as Lord? Or will we trust in ourselves and some false Savior to make us right with God, continuing to live in sinful rebellion as the king of our own lives? Joseph had every reason to be afraid and selfish and refuse what God asked him to do. But he didn't because he trusted God. When the day came to hold this miraculous child in his arms, to see this wondrous thing that God had done, to begin his journey as a father with this child that wasn't his, he believed. He said to his family, he said to his friends, he said to the priest who would dedicate him to the temple, this is Jesus who will save his people from their sins. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And so today, we too must believe. As Christians, we continue to believe that God is with us and that He is for us. That He not only saves sinners, but more than that, that He loves His adopted children even more than Joseph loved his adopted child. As those not yet Christians, you believe that Jesus did what God said He would, saved sinners by His death. Not by fighting a battle, not by giving you self-esteem or power or wealth, but by dying for your sins. You this morning make the decision to turn from a rebellious life of sin and doing things your own way that only leads to hell. And you look to Christ in faith, trusting in Him alone to save you and make you right with God. Lately it has become fashionable again. I say again because it was notorious around the turn of the, century, of the two centuries ago, the early 1900s to deny the virgin birth, even if you were a Christian. And today it's become fashionable again. You hear people all the time, unfortunately people with very large churches and very little brains, saying, ah, oh, the virgin birth's not all that important. And they downplay it. They say, well, it's okay if you don't want to believe it because it's not that important anyway. One young pastor said, if DNA evidence showed Jesus really had a human father, it really wouldn't matter if we believed it or not. What's more important is how we live. Folks, it's dead wrong. I mean, that is dead wrong. What we believe is just as, if not more important than how we live. When Albert Muller first came to Southern Seminary, the flagship seminary of our convention, it was riddled with liberal and heretical beliefs and immoral practices. To give you some idea, I think he said it was in an interview one time, it was like his second week, and someone came and said, knocked on his door and said, uh, Dr. Muller, you need to know that one of the professors here at the seminary uh, is conducting in the basement of the library a lesbian union ceremony. Okay, he said. I mean, that was, that was the climate. And you know the title of his very first message 
that he ever preached in chapel. Do you know what it was? Don't just do something. Stand there. Don't just do something. Stand there. What he was saying is don't think the Christian life is just about doing good things about helping people out and about, about, about going about your business and religious activities. He said, the Christian life is about belief and faith in certain things the Bible teaches. And without those things, with a loss of authority in the Scriptures and in what God says, you wind up with immoral activity. You wind up with professors performing lesbian union ceremonies in the basement of a, of a Southern Baptist library. You wind up with all kinds of crazy things. At the end of the day, all of the beliefs that we are to stand firm on in, Christian, in Christianity are beliefs that come from God's own word, the Bible. And so this morning, to those that would say, well, the virgin birth is all that important, frankly, it doesn't matter if you think it's important or not. The reason why it's important is because God says it happened in His word. And so if you step back and say, well, that's just hard to believe, fine, then let's just be clear. You're saying God's word can't be trusted. You're saying God is a liar. You're saying at the end of the day that what this book says may be right, it may be wrong. That's dangerous water. Because if the virgin birth goes, then frankly, it's not long before Christ goes. But if the Bible's true, if the Bible is really God's word, totally true in all things for all people for all time, then the virgin birth is true. Jesus' miraculous conception really happened. And if it really happened, then we have all the more reason to rejoice in faith that God has saved sinners in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful, Lord, for the amazing mix of glory and humility, of majesty, that is so clearly seen in the virgin conception and birth of our Lord and Savior. Father, we pray that during this Christmas season, Father, in the midst of enjoying time with family and friends, Father, enjoying just the holiday spirit, that, Father, we would never lose sight of who Jesus was and what He came to do. Father, I pray that You would open our eyes, Lord, to see the glory of Christ in Christmas. Brother, this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.